Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. According to a report from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, between 2013 and 2016, 49.1% of U.S. adults tried to lose weight within the previous 12 months. Of those who attempted to lose weight, 62.9% said they tried to do so by eating less food, while 50.4% said they tried to do so by eating more fruits, vegetables, and salads. What's at stake in their efforts is not simply vanity. With 40% of U.S. adults meeting the standards for obesity and given health risks associated with obesity, what's at stake for many of these people is wellness. But what are the best dietary choices, not simply to lose weight, but to live well and sustainably? When it comes to the answers to that question, how idiosyncratic are the answers to particular individuals? In other words, where does one size not fit all? Also, what are the best dietary choices for sustaining the environment? And what can governments do to promote better dietary choices? These are the kinds of questions I recently discussed with Tim Spector. Spector is Professor of Genetic Epidemiology and Head of the Department of Twin Research and Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London. Along with his collaborators, he uses the UK Twins Registry of 10,000 twins to study diseases ranging from back pain, to anxiety, to osteoporosis, to osteoarthritis. He also studies nutrition and health, and recently received the 2019 DuPont Nutrition and Biosciences Microbiome Science Award, given in recognition of, quote, his leadership and pioneering work in the microbiome field, end quote. Finally, he's the author of a new book, Spoon Fed, why almost everything we've been told about food is wrong. I now share a conversation in this episode, which is titled Gut Check. Yeah, well, I, I trained as, a, uh, as an MD, and I originally was a rheumatologist and um, always was interested in research. So I then uh, retrained in epidemiology and very early on started getting interested in twins and I just found twins fascinating uh, as a, as a way of studying human behavior without, you know, uh, having to use lab rats. And so uh, they're this amazing natural experiment where you've got these clones you can look at and, you know, see what happens with different environments. And, and I, I got interested in uh, initially why twins were so similar and then why there was 
end up why they could be so different. And that's what really grabbed me. And I, I, I dabbled for a bit on something called epigenetics, which is switching genes on and off. Realized that that wasn't uh, leading things as fast as I wanted. So I, I suddenly, about 10 years ago, came across the gut microbiome uh, as something that is really different in identical twins and therefore could explain all this difference in health. And to me, this was a bit of a eureka moment. And it coincided with my own eureka moment when I was ill uh, at the top of a mountain. It's a bit of a cliche because everyone who writes um, books on health <laughs> has this uh, uh, health uh, shock, but uh, it was actually real, uh, even if it's a corny story. But I was uh, at about 12,000 feet in the Alps in Italy, and I suddenly got double vision and uh, had a really a sort of mini stroke, uh, I guess we call it, high blood pressure. And so I started reevaluating my own health and diet after that point. And so those two things really came together. And uh, I had the perfect group because I've had these 12,000 twins to study within my research group of uh, 60 people. And so that became a big area of my research the last 10 years, really trying to unravel that understanding between uh, what we eat, what our gut microbes are doing and our health. And that, to me, has been one of the most exciting, has been the most exciting period in, in, my, um, in my career so far. And I've been doing the look at twins for over 25 years now. Can you talk briefly about um, what PREDICT is, what that project is? Yeah, so um, PREDICT came about when uh, the company Zoe came about. And this is um, a, uh, a biotech company that's based in, in Boston and London. And the uh, two, uh, two other entrepreneurs came to see my book talk uh, a few years ago. They liked everything about uh, the, the book, The Diet Myth and, and, and Personalized Nutrition. And so said, we want to get, raise some money and work together to do some real studies on nutrition to really see if we can give everyone personalized nutrition. And so I didn't believe them, but they went away and they raised millions. And suddenly, uh, within about a month, we were starting these amazing, never-be-done-before trials on humans, uh, giving all our twins identical meals. And uh, so we've now done this on thousands of people, including some in, at Mass General. Uh, and this is called the PREDICT studies. So it's really a way of uh, testing everyone with, with an identical muffin and an identical milkshake and seeing how their body responds uh, by doing the most detailed testing you can imagine, um, initially with one day in the clinic and then two weeks at home with glucose monitors and measuring their stool samples and pricking their fingers with the, looking at the differences between your glucose, your insulin, your fat levels, and your inflammation. And, you know, the, the, all, we're still uh, producing a massive data on this, but the, the main thing we, we noticed, the most exciting thing was that normal people, when they have an identical meal, have about an eight to tenfold difference in response to the same meal. 
that means no two people are the same. Everybody is unique. Nobody is average. Are you, once you are, understand are, 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 that, are, are, that's, are, a huge, that's a huge fact. Now, when you say there's eight to tenfold differences, are you referring uh, exclusively to um, the magnitude of the glu- uh, glucose spike uh, after uh, food, or are you referring to other uh, changes? Uh, we're talking about differences in the glucose, with differences in the insulin, differences in the uh, blood fats, the lipids, and differences in inflammation. And so, you know, we, we, we were taking blood, you know, every hour for the whole day, and everybody had a different pattern of how quickly it returned to baseline, whether they had sugar dips, whether the fat levels just kept on rising. Uh, everything was different, and, it, and even in identical twins. And so that really was something that said, all the, all, you know, from that moment, all this rubbish about standard guidelines for food just go out the window. So you have a new book uh, coming out, um, Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food Is Wrong. And uh, I uh, have uh, given the book a very quick uh, read recently and very much, uh, it's very clear that individuality is emphasized uh, throughout the book. No two individuals, even if they're identical twins, are are identical in their responses uh, to food. And everyone's microbiome is different. And when I was reading about the the project, to, uh, uh, as I understand it, to map the biome, I wondered if that project is, in your view, uh, analogous to uh, mapping uh, the human genome. And I, I was I I was gratified to see that there's a paper by Elizabeth uh, Grice and Julia Segre, uh, the title of which is "The Human Microbiome: Our Second Genome." And so they at least buy this analogy. But what about you? Is that a useful um, uh, or, and or valid analogy to suggest that mapping the human microbiome is somehow analogous to mapping the human genome? I think it is um, at some level, but actually what we're realizing is that um, whereas we're 99.5% similar in our uh, genetic makeup, our microbiomes, you know, the difference between you and I is going to be enormous, whereas actually we share most of our genes. Uh, We share very few of our microbes, and each microbe has many genes um, different. So there's two or 300 times more genes in our microbes than in our bodies, although the number of cells is the same. So there's actually even more diversity in our guts than there is in our, in our DNA. But I think it's a good analogy to have because we're sort of at the beginning of that journey there. We're just scraping the surface of what we can find. And that's what makes it exciting because, you know, we still haven't got names for, perhaps 40% of the microbes in our guts, um, and let alone know their function. So uh, it's, it's still early days of explore, exploration, and it's the new technologies, this shotgun sequencing that's allowing us to get into this detail. And, you know, we're making, uh, by, by doing these studies um, on a large scale with thousands and soon 10,000, 100,000 people all doing, eating the same meals, all having the same blood tests, all having the same stool samples sequenced. We're going to, you know, we're making amazing discoveries about new bugs, new parasites uh, that everybody has that 
we can start to understand what they do and which foods people can eat to uh, improve them or uh, reduce them. So I think it's a very exciting era, realizing that because we're, we're all so different, you do need big numbers to, to crack it. You can't just take a few people like uh, you did in the old fashioned studies. And most nutrition studies, you know, have about 20 people in them. Um, that's been the gold standard for years. And it's obviously when you think about it, that, it's all rubbish. Basing anything on 10 people in this group, 10 people in that group, when they're so different, is meaningless. And so that's why we need this population approach. And that's why the uh, it, what's great is we're now moving from these studies into the commercial field. And this company, Zoe, is now selling kits in the U.S., to people who want to test their personal nutrition. And that's a way of also giving us amazing scientific data from people who are basically paying for it um, uh, for themselves and, and happy to contribute. So soon we're going to have 100,000 people all with absolutely identical uh, data around the US and be able to make even more uh, discoveries. And um, when we were getting set up, set up for the interview, did I understand correctly that you're one of the co-founders of Zoe, along with these other entrepreneurs? That's right. Yes. These, these guys came to me and said, would I help design the studies uh, to make this happen? And so um, uh, that's how this, this company got formed. Uh, and uh, it's now, yeah, it's now uh, selling uh, these, these kits in the U.S., and giving people their results. So they're getting, um, based on their, their sugar responses, their fat responses, and their microbiome, everybody is getting a score personalized to them about how they're likely to respond to any future food you might eat. So the idea is you have an app and you can look up and say bananas and say, okay, am I more likely to have a good response to bananas compared to apples. And so you can start making more choices uh, that aren't based on old fashioned calories or fat content or this kind of stuff that is just, you know, so last century. So, Perhaps speaking of last century, one of the things that I was quite struck by when I was reading Spoonfed was uh, you suggest that some early work that you've personally done on genetics and food was, uh, in your terms, uh, rubbish. And so I was reminded of this when you used the term rubbish right now, uh, just a few minutes ago to refer to old studies with very small ends, a very small sample size. And I was really impressed by your willingness to be self-critical in that way. I wonder if you could talk about what led you to such a self-critical judgment regarding your own work. Was it that you were, like the rest of the field, relying on uh, low-end, so small sample size studies, or was there more to that judgment? Well, most scientists who've had a long career will realize that, looking back, they've done some things right and some things wrong. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I've had the, the good fortune to work in a number of different fields. So I've published, you know, I published over, over 900 papers and some I'm really proud of and some I'm really ashamed of. Uh, 
and you know the good thing about science is you you know you should be able to move on and say okay i've got that wrong uh or the field got it wrong and many areas like in the early days of genetics we were getting everything wrong uh because we didn't have a clue about how complicated it was generally scientists oversimplify things in order to write grants and get the money and convince someone that it's dead easy and they're going to find the cure for cancer in five years and uh they never do but so it's you have to be an optimist to be a scientist but at the same time you need to realize when you've made mistakes and uh my early career you know i was making all kinds of associations between uh foods like coffee drinking and cancer um observational studies that you know are happening all the time now with covid everyone's a, everyone's an expert on covid because they say oh well you know people in this state you know do this and people in that state do that that's why they're all dying and these aren't you know everyone's got a theory but of course it's not causation it's uh just correlation and so we've all gone through that stage i went through the stage in in genetics where i was you know discovered uh genes for vitamin d that didn't exist um because we was just small numbers and randomness um and uh many you know i believe like most doctors uh in things like calories and that fats were bad for you and i was brainwashed as well by the establishment uh into thinking that and so vitamins as well i was convinced that vitamin d worked uh because i i've written about 40 papers on vitamin d and i was a an osteoporosis specialist i was giving it to my patients yeah. um and it you know and there's this huge pressure when you when something like that that people saying it must be good for you it's the sunshine vitamin it had so much good press you know and it's not made by a nasty pharmaceutical company it must be amazing uh and it's very hard to come out and say actually it doesn't work you know and we did a trial and it didn't work and i i was trying to find excuses for why it didn't it didn't work rather than saying well maybe it just you know you just need sunshine instead you know and uh right. these chemicals aren't aren't like real food um so i i've made a lot of mistakes in my career and uh but i you know you learn from them and i think that's important well in in mentioning uh vitamin d you remind me that throughout the bulk of your book you go through in a step by step fashion addressing a number of specific myths and i want to actually talk about uh some of those uh myths but i want to start with uh what you characterize as the most dangerous myth and in a way we've hit on this before but you say that in your words the most the most prevalent and dangerous myth about food is the assumption that we are all identical machines and that we all respond to foods in the same way and in, in that section you told an an anecdote about you your wife uh CGMs and I'll invite you to define what CGMs are and breakfast Uh can you uh walk my readers through uh what that story uh, entailed and and what what were the implications uh, of that Yeah so breakfast is a great example of where most of us eat pretty much the same meal every day you know for long periods of our lives we don't know why it's just the way it happens it's not the true in asia but you know that's what we do in europe and the us um and you generally you have carry on your old habits so my habit was to um it's it's varied a bit over the last 10 years but it was either you know a bit of 
bread and toast uh, or it was muesli. Um, uh, it would be some tea or coffee, a bit of orange juice, etc. And um, I started testing myself for what my glucose response was as we were testing for these PREDICT studies. And so I put a glucose monitor on myself, which a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, which um, you can get as part of uh, if you're, you're diabetic uh, or if you take part in these ZOE studies, you, you, can, uh, you can get one for a couple of weeks. But they're great fun. And you start learning how you respond to foods. And I, I was eating my breakfast and I saw my, my levels shooting up all over the place. And uh, I, I, I very generously gave, I'd given my monitor to my wife as well. And she was eating the same thing and nothing happened to her. It was very unfair. So um, you suddenly realize that, you know, two people eating the same meals get a very different response. And so uh, she could eat as much bread as she likes and doesn't get a, a response. Uh, I, I was peaking all over the place up in the diabetic range with bread. Um, I, but I responded better to pasta than she did. So, um, you know, maybe I should be having the Italian breakfast instead. So <laughs> um, you can learn a lot from these things that are not intuitive because a lot of I know a lot of Americans are told to eat oat for breakfast. You know, this is like healthy. Uh, oh, it's, again, it's, 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 it's sorry to interrupt, but it's so funny you say that because this morning um, in anticipating this interview, I thought it would be ironic if I had an unhealthy breakfast. So first I fasted. So I waited longer than I normally would to have breakfast because I thought that's the healthy thing to do. And rather than have the bagel and egg and bacon sandwich that I was craving, I had um, steel cut oats and um, uh, yogurt. Um, how did I do? Well, I don't know because I'm I'm not you. <laughs> but, uh, but the uh, I when I did when I challenged myself with different uh, porridge oats, I found that all the all the rapid ones, the ones you can do instantly, all gave me a big sugar peak. Yep. Um, the only ones that didn't, the ones you had to leave overnight, you know, a real pain in the ass to, to cook. You've got to prepare them. And uh, they were generally the steel cut ones. You've got to soak overnight. And then they had much less of a peak. Yeah. So if you do those ones, because um, they've actually got much more fiber in them uh, and you had it with yogurt, uh, that would also suppress any sugar peak. And if it was, was it full fat yogurt? It was uh, non-fat yogurt, but I think it had artificial sweeteners in it. Yeah, well, that's not good. You should just always <laughs> go for the natural one. Um, forget all this low-fat nonsense uh, because they just add in other chemicals that are much worse than, uh, than natural fats. So, um, And the sweeteners also mess up your microbes. So you, you're doing so well until that you told me that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I don't know how you're responding. I'm guessing. But, you know, realistically, you're, you're going to have to, you know, check what your blood fats do uh, six hours after you've eaten that meal and also see what your CGM uh, tells you. So, you know, um, and this is how you'll learn what the best meal is for you and your body. Uh, and there's no easy way. There are a few people that can tell instinctively how they feel. There, we found one in four people uh, who have a, like a, a muffin breakfast, which you know, the blueberry muffin is the become the sort of traditional uh, U.S. Uh, meal. Um, they get a sh 
one in four people about 30 minutes afterwards, they feel a real uh, dip in their energy and they don't feel great. And we found this, they were blind to what their sugar levels were doing. We found these people had a dip below the average, below their normal level. And those people ended up feeling more tired and actually eating earlier and more than people who didn't have a dip. So if you can start to work out which foods give you a dip, you can avoid them and you'll actually end up eating less. And this is what we're finding with people who do uh, go on this program and follow it. They, they you know, do report better energy levels and you know, not short term, but longer term, they, they, they do uh, lose weight without actually worrying about calories or uh, fats or anything else, just by trying to match the stuff that uh, suits their own metabolism. So this is a podcast about uh, politics and policy. And so I want to think about potential connections to policy. And if I imagine that I were a policymaker, um, I might be tempted to uh, require uh, very specific labeling of foods. Um, I might require uh, fast food restaurants to give uh, calorie counts. But if I understand uh, the various myths you've described in the book, it's tricky to do that effectively because there's not a single metric like calories that's going to be universally meaningful and helpful for all people because each person's microbiome is different. What sort of advice on labeling would you give to uh, a policymaker or perhaps to, uh, if you don't want to think of it that way, to a business that's deciding uh, how to label uh, their food products in a way that will allow or at least help consumers make more uh, healthy choices? Well, most businesses want to sell their product, not not to make people make healthy choices. So mm-hmm. they're in a conflict. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and that's why uh, most uh, U.S. food labels, the thing you see is the calorie and you see the, the fat content, okay? They're the people, things that people have been programmed to um, look at and say, okay, low calorie, low fat, that's good for me, okay? And by reading that, they forget all the other crap that's on the label, all the other 20 ingredients of chemicals and artificial sweeteners and emulsifiers, preservatives, all kinds of stuff that's not been uh, really paid any attention to. So it's like a smokescreen. So that's what they've done effectively for the last 30 years. So that uh, the American consumer looks at a, a packet and they see those two things and that's what they buy it on. They might have a, another one says with added vitamins. So your vitamin count gets a tick and they don't look at all the other crap that's in it. And so that means they're ignoring the quality of the food. And that's why Americans have more ultra-processed food than any other country in the world. Um, and that's why they're unhealthier. Um, the UK, by the way, is the second. Uh, is we're, we're, we're champions of Europe, so I'm not, not far by. Okay. Um, it's the same problem. But the um, so a manufacturer is never going to voluntarily put stuff there. If they make ultra-processed food, 
basically there's nothing they can do to uh, hide that fact other than pursue the calories and low fat that helps them sell those rubbish products. Um, some countries have, have like, like the Chileans have gone and uh, gone all the way. They've actually uh, banned cartoons on cereal packets. They're like, like you know, what's happened to, to, to cigarette packets. And they've come up with a single um, device, which is a black spot. And if you see a black spot, it means this is ultra processed food. Avoid it. And as you can imagine, uh, the food company is not very happy in, yeah. uh, in Chile uh, and they're fighting it. And there's all kinds of uh, things going on in there, uh, as you would expect. But that's that's really what needs to happen, because most people don't understand that there, there are increasing studies now, just like the sugar dips example of having identical muffins, but in one person that makes them hungrier, others don't. It means this whole idea of calories being equal for both people is, is nonsense. And also there's an NIH study last year comparing identical calorie meals, but one ultra-processed, one natural, uh, both tasty meals. They both got good identical ratings on how people like them, but the group taking the ultra-processed ones ate a lot more and, and felt hungrier sooner. So the identical calorie product, identical fat content product is just made to make people eat more, right? Everyone's popped open a can of Pringles and found it very hard to just eat one of them, right? Yeah. Why? It's nothing to do with the calories or the fat or anything. It's because those magic chemicals they put in them yeah. to uh, screw around with your mind and your, and your gut. Well, one of the things that I uh, found quite um, engaging in the book was in the section, at least in, in at least uh, one section where you were discussing the ways in which calorie counts get overemphasized. Uh, you invoked the metaphor of um, a car, um, the petrol, so the gasoline for us Americans, uh, and uh, the long journey. Um, I assume you recall that metaphor that you invoked. Uh, can, would, would you be willing, because uh, you will do it more justice than I will, can you talk about uh, that metaphor? Because I, I, and this isn't so much a question as just me saying, I love that metaphor and I want to talk about it briefly. Yeah, so the metaphor was really between, uh, you know, the advice, say that if you're a uh, female, you need 2,000 uh, calories a day. And on that, you'll you'll run perfectly you won't put on weight and uh, everything will be fine uh, and that the um, the analogy is that you, you've got your your car and uh, you you put in a set amount of uh, uh, gasoline equal to those those calories and uh, you know you'll be able to go a, a set distance uh, but what you're doing in your in your car is you've got no gauge to to work out uh what anything's doing so you've got you're unable to see how much uh you're using and you're expected to go an exact amount of, of distance without knowing anything about it and it, it's a similar idea because everybody's car is going to be different and 
and yet you're putting exactly the same amount of gasoline into every car and it's going to be doing all kinds of things with different hills and whatever and that's exactly what the, the human analogy is so if you tried to uh, plan your life uh, filling up your car without any gauges um, you'd quickly come unstuck and that's what's happened to humans so i think that's my my simple way of uh, of telling that story about why calories are such overest overestimated uh, uh, in in our in all our lives, and uh, it, it's done basically to sell us rubbish products and and keep us in line. And in a manner that I saw as parallel to that, you also suggested elsewhere in the book that counting food miles in an effort to assess. Uh, the environmental impact of particular food choices is also overemphasized. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot in the book uh, because this is a really new thing about people's food choices uh, helping the planet. And um, there's no doubt that uh, if you you make the right food choices for your own health, uh, there's a really strong correlation with how they help the planet. So what's good for your gut microbes are actually good for the planet. So, you know, that's pretty obvious, mainly plant-based stuff. You can't go far wrong. But if you're worried about whether your, you know, your strawberries are going to come from uh, California or uh, you should get them locally, um, there's all kinds of problems with that. And because local isn't always best. Uh, That's what uh, my research discovered, which was a bit of a surprise to me. I assumed always best to buy locally. But, um, you know, sometimes getting it from Mexico or California, where you, it's delivered in bulk and they use the sun naturally. They don't have to use uh, heaters and uh, artificial scenarios that actually burn a lot of energy. Uh, and they might transport it in very large amounts that are actually cost efficient, as opposed to lots of small trucks going around the, you know, your local community make a big difference. And so... There's a lot of it's very complex, the food mile story. So we shouldn't assume that uh, local is always best. Uh, There was a good story. I I found that the British uh, eat a lot of lamb and there was a big uh, protest against getting all our lamb from New Zealand, which is the exact opposite side of the world. Yeah. And we should get it from, you know, 100 miles away where there's plenty of uh, wild lamb. And someone did an analysis and found out that actually the scale of it and putting it over in a, in a frozen um, tanker by sea was actually much more efficient than just uh, all, all the different uh, small uh, outlets uh, getting that those from those small farms, driving it to uh, the local people. So, yeah, we've got to not make assumptions too much about about these food miles. It's much more complicated than uh, than people think. And that complication raises a big question for me as I imagine someone, perhaps if they don't read your book, but they listen to this podcast episode, they, I could imagine, might feel a little overwhelmed because at the end of the day, you're saying there's no one size fits all set of recommendations, uh, 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 except perhaps avoid ultra processed food. Uh, but uh, calorie counting overemphasized. You need more information than that for environmental impact, food miles, that sort of simple heuristic approach 
uh, is easily easily overemphasized to really grapple with the complexity uh, that one must engage with to make sustainable choices sounds really hard. And so what would you say to someone who just throws up their hands and says, I can't do that. That sounds too overwhelming. Well, I'd understand that initial reaction. And, you know, um, and if you read the book, yeah, you, you, your head might be saying, oh, my God, everything, you know, I, I, I've got, who do I trust here? Um, uh, but I, I would say trust your gut. And No pun um, intended. Or is the pun intended? It is the pun intended, yeah. So um, in my previous book, The Diet Myth, I really go into this that um, if you – if you eat in a way that helps your gut microbes and you think about them as the, the recipient of your uh, bounty every day, then you can't go far wrong. And, and I think, you know, because not everyone can go and, uh, uh, you know, has the money to go and pay for personalized nutrition testing. Um, not everyone can do things right or afford expensive foods and, 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 Everyone's rushed, et cetera. But it, if you just stop and think before you put stuff in your mouth, say, how would my gut microbes like this, right? I, I've got to keep these guys healthy for, you know, the rest of my life. They're the guys looking after me. They're crucial for my immune system, my metabolism, my, my mental well-being. You know, they're going to stop me getting depressed in winter and COVID and stuff like this. So I, I need to give them – I need to have as many different diverse species as possible – I need to keep them producing chemicals. So how do I do that? And there's a few rules, um, but the, the pairing it down, uh, try and have as many different plants in a week as you can. Uh, diversity is the key. I don't care what they are. There's no such thing as a superfood uh, plant. Uh, apart from iceberg lettuce, uh, they'll all do pretty well. So 30 <laughs> of them, and you say, oh, I can't have 30, you know, have you been to my 7-Eleven? It's terrible. You know, there's nothing there. Well, you can buy a bag of mixed nuts and seeds. They're plants, okay? Yeah. So that gives you 10 plants. If you sprinkle that on your, uh, your yogurt in the morning, you know, you, you're well ahead. Um, so think try, 30 is the optimum to get maximum diversity in your gut. Then have some fermented food every day. I don't know. Um, apart from your, your low-fat yogurt, do you have any other fermented foods? Um, does beer count? <laughs> um, not really. Uh, unless you <laughs> really drink, it has to be the dregs of the, uh, the ale. But um, uh, probably not. But anyway, try, try and have some uh, uh, kefir, okay, which is fermented milk. This is 10 times stronger than yogurt. There's uh, more microbes in it. What about, what about what about sauerkraut? Sauerkraut's great. Kimchi's great. Yep. Um, make sure they're not the cheap ones that are in vinegar, though. So they've got to be real cultures. And then some of the listeners might know kombucha. Uh, which yes. Is, um, which is fermented tea. Uh, all of these are actually cheap to make yourself and actually re- surprisingly easy. Um, so, but you only need a tiny one of these every day just to keep, keep your microbes tipping along. Then we've said avoid junk foods. You can have the occasional one, but don't have too much. And then uh, the other thing you can do is fasting, uh, like you did this morning. Uh, you know, restricted time eating. So you give your, your gut time to heal. Um, 
and reduce this snacking. Uh, we weren't designed to be eating five or six times a day as um, the food companies want us to. Um, that's a new invention. And breakfast's a new invention. Snacking's a new invention. And our gut microbes don't like it. So if you put all that together and you try and pick foods that are high in polyphenols, which is uh, what microbes love. So even things like coffee, dark chocolate, um, olive oil, red wine, artisan cider, even things that are naughty, uh, they can be nice for your gut microbes. So, and just to, just to be clear, polyphenols are what are often referred to as antioxidants. Yeah, I think that's the old word for them. Because um, we did, antioxidant is a word used by doctors when they don't really know what it, what it does. Um, and, and so we've just discovered that actually they don't work direct on the body. They actually work mainly through the microbes. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that's all the colorful berries you get. So you get lots of polyphenols in nuts. So, you know, peanuts are good for you. You know, it's, it's not good news. Um, and, and all kinds of berries, blueberries, whatever, uh, packed with polyphenols. Anything that's brightly colored um, yeah. is generally good news. So these are, everyone can do this, right? And you don't have to worry about calories or anything. That's, there are, so there's plenty of stuff that's not complicated if you think as your goal is to keep your microbes happy. And you do that, you'll naturally increase your fiber and uh, you'll be happy. As we close, shifting from advice to individual consumers, what advice would you give to policymakers who are interested in empowering low-income consumers and consumers uh, low in education, especially those who live in food deserts, so who don't have access to a supermarket with lots of fresh vegetables, for example, and those policymakers want to empower those consumers to make sustainable food choices for themselves and their families. Do you have advice for policymakers on how they can uh, help those consumers? Yeah, the the disparity in price between the processed foods and the and the, and the natural foods is getting bigger in every country. It's just it's, it's you know you don't need manual labor to make stuff in a factory. You know, it's robots are doing it. So you've either got to start taxing the, uh, the cheap food and put that money back into uh, subsidies for real food, or you've got to find out some other way of getting fruit and vegetables to the people that can't afford it, either through food boxes or uh, some, other, some other routes. You can only, there's only two ways to do that, really. You've got to make either fruit and vegetable cheaper or you've got to raise taxes uh, on the other. And convince people to pay more of their salaries on food. Because in the US, compared to other countries, people spend virtually nothing on food compared to their cars or their houses or uh, whatever. So it's, everyone's got used to cheap, bad food. And, it, and the, the other thing is educating kids. Uh, I think that's the other thing. If you're looking for long-term change, it's got to start in, in school and uh, even in kindergarten, kids have got to start seeing what real food looks like and not think that it always has to come out of a packet and is always beige colored. 
Um, I think that's that's really crucial. So they're the things. It's not easy. And the power of the food companies is enormous. They are huge players with budgets uh, bigger than half the countries in the world. So it's no mean challenge. But I think just recognizing the problem is the first thing. And it, people haven't targeted processed food yet because uh, the successful lobbying of the food industry. They've blamed the consumer. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Tim Spector for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about him, as well as the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links, including a link to information about how you can join Zoe. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can post a rating and or a review at Apple Podcasts, or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. To offer financial support for Tatter, go to patreon.com and find the page for Tatter where you can sign up to become a patron. But be aware, if you are currently a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support. But for all others, come on in, the water's just fine. With all that said, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.